Beyond Infinity. And welcome to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show, where we look back over some of the most interesting stuff we've covered on the show in recent times. I thought I'd start with a piece we did about tackling negative online reviews. So in groundbreaking legal action, a Melbourne dentist has persuaded the Federal Court of Australia to ask Google for a damaging online business review to be removed. Reform and redress of anonymous business reviews is urgently needed. We talk about online privacy a lot. It can be very hard to extract information from the big tech mm-hmm. giants. You know, if you, if, you, if you lose a password to Gmail, good luck trying to get that yeah. back. You know, if you haven't got a backup source or a, a, a hint question or, you know, a backup email or some You're other way of getting device. Yeah, yeah, some other way of getting around it. And, and you lose your password or you forget it or something happens, then uh, it can be very, very tricky to get it back. And that's because these companies have got really, really tight rules regarding privacy and, mm. and security as well. Just recently in Melbourne, a dentist has actually been helped by the federal court in unmasking a disgruntled customer who had been you know, doing some negative reviews and some stuff which was kind of damaging to this guy's reputation. Yeah, it, it hasn't got to the point where it's been technically unmasked, but it's at the point where the, the federal court is requesting that of Google at the moment. So this is, it, it could lay the, you know, the groundwork for, for future reveals because, look, I've, I've been to, you know, you do a search on Google Maps, so you do your search for a business, and when you find that business, you tend to look at the reviews, but particularly the negative reviews. So if you, you know, open up a business and it has one review and that review is a one-star negative review, then you, you tend to sort of absorb that and think, well, do I really want to do, you know, do I really want to work with this business or purchase or use their service, whatever it happens to be? And that's kind of what happened with this dentist, a Melbourne dentist. So this person who goes by the the username cbsm23 they had left a review a one star a review on this dentist page mm-hmm. and there was no other reviews for this dentist so it was just one review one star and what that meant was that that one negative review meant that nobody else or other people that may have searched for this dentist decided well i don't think i this want to where you use see that. those google reviews yeah. yeah so when you do the search you're actually seeing the review That's with right. your search results that's right so it can be potentially quite damaging and look i I get asked to review certain places that are maybe i frequent uh so like you know you were here recently what did you think Mm. and you can go in and you can put any star review now i have tended to find and you probably hopefully agree with me that people don't tend to review something unless it's either exceptionally good service or amazing service Mm. or bad service and And it doesn't have to be that bad it just has to be bad Yeah, yeah that's right and 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 people are more motivated, I think, for to do it ne- to do a upset. negative review. You yes. know, I I feel like, a, and I want to damage them, and I can do it. I've got an online way of doing that. Whereas often, if people have had a good experience, they just tend to not be bothered, you know, because they've they've had a good experience and they want to move on. They're doing something else. Yes, that's right. And look, I I think I've reviewed I reviewed one place a few years ago, and I left I did leave them a negative review because I had a very negative experience. Mm. Uh, but then probably about five months later, I'm like, look. Uh, I was I was probably overreacting, so I ended up deleting that review. But I'm not suggesting that would have done much damage to the business because there was many reviews. There was probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of reviews on that business. And to do a Google review that we're talking about, which is what this dentist was up against, mm-hmm. um, and he's trying to tackle through the uh, the, the federal court, um, you have to be logged into 
Google, you have to have a Google account with yeah. a with a with a username and and a password That's right, to be able to submit that review, which a lot of people have got. They I mean, do, if but if you've got plenty, a Gmail account, then you've got one. Yeah, but it's pretty easy to fake. I mean, I don't didn't have to submit up. any um, you know documentation to say who I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can create almost any name under the sun, mm. and so so the argument is that because of this negative review, it harmed the business, mm. and therefore Doctor Kebabe went to the courts to seek uh, for you know you know Google to reveal the information so that because he'd unsuccessfully attempted to you know contact Google and ask for the review to be removed because if the review was incorrectly added there are plenty of fake reviews whether they could be good or bad yeah. and so in some cases I mean we see it here in news stories if if somebody has done something illegal or wrong uh, and it hits the the news then if they are connected to a business sometimes that business can and get the negative reviews from people, you know, talking about, well, how dare you do this? Even if the action from that person or persons have nothing to do with the business, mm. they're just connected to that business. Mm. So in those cases, uh, Google will stop the reviews, and they may even delete reviews because they're not appropriate for that particular business. Mm-hmm. And all this doctor wanted to do was say, well, look, I, I don't think it's right. It should be removed. Or he, he said, just quoting him, he said, I believe it's in- extremely unfair that people are allowed to anonymously attack honest, hardworking, small businesses. Um, and then I think through his lawyers, um, he uh, his lawyers uh, said uh, in regard to this particular case, a bad review can shut down a business these days because most people live and breathe online. Exactly. So there's that incredible influence and yeah. power. And if you've just done a search for something and you see the review before you even uh, you know, look at, at the detail of what the website is or what the, the, the company profile is, that sort of stuff, you're being prejudiced from the outset yes. by this negative review you've seen. So where it's led to now is that Justice Bernard Murphy has compelled Google to turn over any um, identifying information, and that could be a name, a phone number, an IP address, a location, metadata. And normally what would happen is, or, or previously what would happen is, that order would go to the governing body here in Australia and because we're part of the Hague Convention or the Hague Service Convention that would then go across to America and go to the sort of the governing body over there and then be submitted to Google but there's been a workaround which has allowed for sort of a direct from Australia you know from the courts directly to Google uh, you know with a registered post service yeah yeah which it's it doesn't mean as 100% that it will allow this information to be handed over. Mm. Google has probably got a million different reasons why they wouldn't want to hand that information over. It could open up the, the can of worms for any review. And we've words, talked yeah. about the right to be forgotten, which is where, you know, there was an example in Europe, I think in Germany, a guy who'd been a bankrupt mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and then he'd come out of bankruptcy. And if you did a search for him or for his name, which someone might, if they were vetting him for a future business deal mm-hmm. or something, or they wanted to, I don't know, sign a contract with him, doing, doing some online vetting, it came up that he'd been a bankrupt and he sort of felt that, you know, enough was enough, 20 years later or whatever, he deserved to have a clean slate. And I think he also went through this process where yeah. he kind of had to contact the big search engines and get, get things changed. So, look, I'm, I'm hopeful for this, Doctor, but uh, I, I think the outcome is going to be not the one that they would like. Mm. I do think there could be better ways that reviews could be done to protect businesses Mm. and along the lines of prove that you were a customer of this business. That might be when you do the Google review, you have to upload a portion or the whole receipt as an example. Um, That way it can show that you actually transacted with this business. 
let's say for example that you don't like another business you could attack that business by employing a company to provide fake reviews mm. and so in those uh, situations well it's up if the other business is losing business because of these fake reviews that i see it should be where they can remove the the negative reviews they should be able to go to google and say these are not legitimate they're not customers they should be removed and so if there was a, a mechanism in place which could help to prove that you are a customer, then I would fully support that system, and that would hopefully weed out a lot of this this rubbish that we do see online. I mean, it's it's not the majority of reviews, but there are a portion which are, um, you know, people that have never used that particular company. Mm. It might be uh, because they've got you know a problem with the company itself or the competitor of some Absolutely. sort. Absolutely, yeah. you're trying to damage your competition. You're trying to move into a new area. You know, you know who the competition is. It's very unethical and it is unfair if you can damage them by doing an anonymous and completely unfactually based review. I mean, that, that's, but it is, it's a hard one to, to police this and trying to get giant companies, the likes of, of Google mm. and, and, uh, and similar, Facebook is another one, to, to actually respond to individual cases mm. of this sort of scale and size in Australia yes. or elsewhere. I mean, imagine the scale of that problem you know that there could be a lot of people who feel very disgruntled by this sort of thing and I mean, what happens if you what happens if you use a vpn well you know? and that's what they're saying i mean if you're trying to hire with a vpn then it's going to be pretty difficult to locate you and mm. look a spokesman from google has come out and said that they don't comment on ongoing legal matters mm. uh, which is unsurprising mm. uh, comment from them mm. so look we'll, we'll wait and see what happens as i said hopeful but uh, not expecting the outcome that they desire i wonder if that was a a robo generated response from google probably you're listening to from the vault the best of the beyond infinity radio show where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years john we've talked about big data google facebook twitter these companies are now so big and the amount of information that's been collected by them is so vast you know i, I heard a statistic recently that uh, the data in, and it's accelerating the amount of data that's being being gathered uh, by big data mm-hmm. through big data mm-hmm. and basically through people's smartphones in particular uh, is the way that this happens. But obviously other other means as well. But particularly through smartphones, they're all pervasive and people use them all the time. And every comment you post, everything you like, everything that you look for on Google Maps is all recorded and aggregated and can be mined yeah. for information. Some of it for good use and some. For, maybe to manipulate the outcomes of elections or to to target you with uh, manipulative political advertising, that sort of stuff, or fake news or other stuff. So there's kind of a a dark side and and a good side to this, potentially. We've talked about how AI assisted with big data can do a lot for medical advancement. So... Mm -hmm. You know, aggregating information about people's eyes and then inferring things about their health, their, their heart, from, yeah, yeah, from yeah. from just from iris scans, yeah. which you know, which there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions, that have been done around the world, and that data gets aggregated. I recently heard that every exhibition of art in the whole world, there is actually a a database of every single exhibition of every bit of art in the whole world which is amazing ranging from you know from the top the national gallery of australia or or, uh, moma in new york or Mm -hmm. wherever it happens to be Mm -hmm. you know right down to the the small uh, suburban church that's got an exhibition on over the easter holidays that kind of stuff so there is actually a database that covers everything and that enables 
all sorts of things that, that can be very practical and beneficial for artists, particularly ones who are trying to commercialise their work and trying to look at what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And one of the key things that, this is just as an aside that I came across, is that on the subject of art, it's not about quality. It's not about performance. It's about the network. So you, the individual performs, but whether they succeed or not depends on the network mm-hmm. and the people around them. Mm-hmm. And so that then means big data has a role. So you don't need to be a brilliant genius. I mean, it helps if you are, but the the key to real success is actually taking advantage of the network rather than just you can be as talented as anyone, but without the network to support you, you're nothing. Exactly, yeah. So we know that big data is huge. And just on the subject of the amount of data that's being generated is accelerating. And I think it was something like if every bit of data produced just in the last two years was burnt onto DVDs and those DVDs were stacked flat on top of each other, mm-hmm. the stack would go to our moon and back many, many times. I believe that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So, so it's a staggering amount. I mean, lots of different ways you can visualize it. But um, the, the amount of data capture that's happening mm-hmm. on a given day would be petabytes. Yeah. Um, if we're, we're in the world, mm-hmm. which is a huge volume. And you data. wonder how companies like Google and Apple uh, can actually, I mean, what are they doing? Are they, they, I know they have these giant warehouses out in the desert of America and Nevada, and they're often solar powered, mm-hmm. and they're in the middle of nowhere because it's cheaper and whatever they can get the space to to build the data centers but you wonder whether they're just constantly having to build more and more and more or whether they're finding more more efficient ways of storing it plus there's the cloud you know all all that data that's going onto there as well it's it's just an insane amount of data and i just wonder how the the storage can be handled but also the redundancies the backups i mean you're not going to have one copy of it you can have multiple copies Mm. in case one data center is corrupted or fails in Mm. some way whether Mm. it be hardware or software Mm. so you've got multiple versions of the same data that's that's forever growing Mm. so you know let's assume it's four times the data well you know every second there's four times the that that in storage that's Mm. happening right around the world Mm. As a minimum, so it's it is a concerning thing because then who has access to it? What what is actually happening with that data? Is it used for legitimate reasons? Is it illegitimate? Uh, it's it is a little concerning from my end. It's the safety and security side of things. Yeah. We we look at it. You know, we tend to think about our daily lives. Oh, it's non consequential. You know, I I get up, I drive my car, I listen to some Spotify. I you know my daily activities. What does that mean in the grand scheme of things? But mm. when the the sum of the parts are the greater of the total amount, and mm. when you look at it in terms of what is captured from groups of people or civilizations or mm. countries, mm. whatever it happens to be. And this is reflected in the share prices of these big companies like Facebook, all that's information about people, social connections, yep. the networks that exist between people. Facebook has that information. If you use WhatsApp, you know, a lot of people think, oh, WhatsApp's a secure end-to-end it's encrypted. encrypted. Yeah. Great, great way of, of secure communication. A lot of people use it and it kind of, it does what iMessage does from Apple phone to, to from iPhone to iPhone, but it allows that between any device. So mm. you, don't, you can be on Android, you can be on any kind of phone and you can use WhatsApp and it's encrypted to end but all those communications if you read the fine print the old user agreement the t's and c's that we've talked about in the past that you know that often 300 page pdf that no one bothers to ever look at buried in there is some pretty interesting stuff about how the facebook owns that information and reserves the right to mine it for data and to to aggregate it with other information it has about you for example from instagram or facebook this is why that company is such a monster that's why its share price is as high as it is because it's got that power it's got that market power which you can on sell to advertisers and and make a killing google the same so 
I came across recently. A good example of where big data is being used for sort of human benefit. The story comes out of Virginia University there. Um, it's actually from news.virginia.edu. We'll include uh, links to this in our show notes. There's new research that shows text messages can help predict suicide attempts. And right. the reason why this is important, I mean, obviously suicide's a very sad thing when it happens anywhere. But in America, almost 130 people a day are committing suicide. So at the University of Virginia, they've been looking at this. They're looking at what can we, how can we potentially tap into big data? And I think a lot of companies, if you want to solve any problem, big data is one of your first places mm. you'll stop if you're trying to do it on a big scale. One of the things that they're doing is they're saying, well, language, the type of language, the words that people use in text messages, particularly in the, in the two weeks leading up to a suicide or an attempted suicide, can actually potentially help clinicians predict quite accurately in real time an increased risk of, of suicide or a suicide attempt. Feelings of sad, unhappiness, yeah, Well, particular words. Yeah. Words like hate, mad, annoyed. Things, right. that, things that suggest an angry mood. Unlike words that suggest a, a good mood um, and they can be things, you know, quite... You know, like, love. Absolutely. Happy, joyful, yeah, you know, related, yeah. Yep. And so what they did was they took 33 individuals who'd attempted suicide in the past and collected nearly 200,000 text messages th- from those 33 people, which in it itself seems like a lot. Is, of text I know messages. it's a truckload, isn't it? But yeah. I guess if you if you started totaling up your own text messages, uh, ever since they basically became free, yeah, I guess. On, you know, yeah. when you were paying for them, maybe it was slightly different. I mean, I wonder whether they're including Facebook messages or whether they're including WhatsApp messages because they're all kind of like a text message um, or whether it's just a a standard text message. It's interesting that that if you're going to send a text message, like non, just, you know, if you and I, we text each other, Mm. are they suggesting that just through normal text messages that potentially I would send you, if they include a couple of negative keywords, that would be a potential indicator or are they looking at potentially... Uh, if I have a very negative text message, hey, Piers, I'm really upset today, mm. I'm unwell, and then they're looking at that as the indicator. I, I wonder, think, I look, I th- I think that, yeah, I think it is just those key words. It's literally just looking for certain key words. And I thought that that sample number, 33 individuals, wasn't that high. Yeah, you know, it's you'd wonder low how, sample group. But yeah. then 200,000 text messages, analyzing them to identify real-time patterns in communication uniquely, uniquely associated with a pending suicide attempt. So according to a researcher, she's a PhD graduate, um, sorry, he, uh, who's the lead author of this study from uh, University of Virginia. It's a PhD graduate, Jeff Glenn. He said that, it, that this study was done because it's hard for clinicians to know when their patients are at risk of, of attempting suicide. So often they won't communicate it, or if they do, they'll only do it during the meeting. And the meeting isn't that they have with their psychologist or their mm. specialist or their doctor. Mm. They won't necessarily regularly update them on how they're feeling. So it might be once every couple of months that they see them, but in between time, their, their moods change. So that's why the, the, the tone of, their, of something like their text messages is indicative of, of where they're at in between clinical visits. What they're trying to do is look for unique signs within this two-week window before a suicide attempt, 
which give a sense of if, if a person is close to a crisis or if a crisis might be coming up. And does that suggest that there would be a person intervention or potentially AI within the phone would, would send a text message back <laughs> yeah. with... Uh, you, need to, you need to feel happy. <laughs> yeah, here's, here's the link to you know, Lifeline Australia, for example, 13 11 14. If you have uh, unhappy thoughts, mm. etc., then mm. you can call this number mm. and have a chat to somebody 24 yeah. hours a day. Look, something like that, yes. Yeah. Or maybe something flashes up in their clinician's on their phone or on their desktop and, and they can maybe get in contact with them. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess it's obviously this is about prevention and avoidance. Mm-hmm. It's seeing a pattern in, in the tone of, of communications by text, but mm-hmm. I'm sure there'd be other patterns in other forms of communication yeah. which could also be looked at. Email, for example, even voice communications or even stuff that's posted to social media. I mean, all this sort of thing can be mined. And we've we've even talked about how riots and civil unrest can be predicted quite accurately using things like social media to, mm. uh, to work out where flashpoints might happen and actually predict them in real time yeah. and send authorities to actually hose things down before they get out of hand. Mm. Even even festivals. There's been examples of, of drones flying over music festivals yes. and spotting violence and, you alerting, know, and alerting people yeah. as it's happening or mm. about to happen, mm. looking for the, the, the early signs of, of things getting out of hand. Mm. Uh, so the same kind of thing is being applied here with text messages. I'm sure it's just one form of digital communication that can be used but you know let's face it we leave digital footprints everywhere we go and everything through everything we do this is just one example of where some of it can be used for a good purpose and that would be to prevent suicides and to assist people to counsel people when they're in need Digital communication is in, uh, directly and, and very deeply integrated into our lives these days. I would like to see a, you know, this study looking at people that maybe don't use a mobile phone as well and seeing how that cross-references. Yeah. I mean, yep. That would be the control, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, this looked at 33 people you know, with text messages. Mm. So if there was people that um, maybe were in a similar scenario, maybe they have a phone but didn't actually send many text messages, are there any things that they can infer from other data on the device, whether it be a GPS location in a particular spot where there may have been uh, an unfortunate his- history of suicides mm. Mm. Or, or other data that can maybe mm. captured as well. Mm. Yeah. The researchers at University of Virginia do admit that it's early days for this, this work. They do need to do a lot more work to fine-tune this, yeah. to have a bigger sample and stuff. But the research will be published in the journal Clinical Psychological Science. Uh, we will include links with our show notes. And just again, John, that Lifeline number you mentioned before. Yeah, Lifeline, if you uh, would like to speak to somebody, they're available 24 hours a day here in Australia. It's 13 11 14. Yep, and I think there's similar services elsewhere in the world. Yeah. You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. You are listening to From the Vault, the best of Beyond Infinity. More really great stories coming your way today. The first is about lab-grown meat. Kind of a follow-up story. We've already talked about that in the show, but uh, this is a more recent update that John's provided us with. And then a story about the precision landing that's planned to happen in early 2021 at Jezero Crater. That's another nuclear-powered rover, a bit like Curiosity, but different instruments on board and have special technologies enabling it to land with very high precision. 
This is about something which is bit we've already reported on, and you mm. were in the states recently, and you had some experience of this. But lab-grown meat, yeah, and and it, you know, some you just you're telling me off air before the incredible cost of the amount of burgers that are consumed around the world at McDonald's, for example. You know, the number of cows and the number yeah. of land mm. and the and the the effect on the environment of doing it that way. Uh, lab-grown meat could have a big future. Yeah, well, look, I, I didn't get to try one of the Impossible Burgers while in the States. And this and the Impossible Burger is one of the um, sort of the plant-based replacements for a meat patty. And right. that is becoming more popular because a lot of people argue that um, you cannot tell the difference. I haven't tried one, so I can't say either way. But some of the you know YouTube videos and articles I've read say it is you know virtually identical. It's just that mental um, you know process to go through to say, well, I'm, I'm eating something which is equivalent in protein, in taste, Taste, etc., um, to you know a a real uh, beef burger, mm. uh, but we know that uh, scientists have been you know looking to create the lab-grown meat burger, and this is from stem cells, so straight out of a test tube essentially you know grow the stem cells into a patty versus trying to raise cattle bizarre isn't it it's a bizarre idea look and it's like eating insect burgers i mean they're saying it's you know eventually insects are going to be the things that people eat and they're apparently quite good for high in protein apparently yeah yeah yeah. yeah. so look we know that the uh the lab grown burgers soup in cambodia i did see the when i was there a few years ago i did see the tarantulas there was no way i was gonna eat one Mm, crunchy tarantula (laughs) on top on the top of a big bowl of soup no thank you Uh, but we know that some years ago it was, I think, to, to grow a, a stem cell a cultured burger mm. was um, above three hundred and fifty thousand, maybe four hundred thousand dollars for one burger. Right. And so at the time, it was you know derided and laughed at. Well, you know this this is ridiculous. But it was also expected that over time and with more funding and research, then that would come down. So mm. it's a, it appears though an Israeli company called Future Meat Technologies said that it's possible for them to bring down um, you know the, the the cost of the burger between three to six dollars. Right. And uh, and so that is a lab-grown burger. Now, the reason you might want to do this is when looking at what their current situation is versus the alternate, which is what you're alluding to before. And and an article recently um, came from you know a, a grad student or Stephanie Kawecki, and she had determined that to produce one billion quarter pounders, which are equivalent to you know 113 grams approximately each, right. It takes 1.2 million cows living for three years on 8,600 square kilometres of land. Right. Then you have to slaughter them. Yep. Um, but the, the same number of cultured burgers would require the muscle stem cells of just one living cow. Yeah, isn't it amazing? And they'd take only about a month and a half to grow. And imagine if you had trees or, or jungle, what was it, all the original old growth forest that, that was there. And not to mention, you don't have the emissions of those animals because I think methane is uh, methane from from livestock mm-hmm. is one of the biggest greenhouse gases yeah. in the world. And look, and here in Australia, we're going through a, a really terrible drought up mm. uh, in the north mm. uh, in in cattle country. There's supposed to be a lot of rain uh, recently. There's been none. Uh, some uh, farmers mm. are saying there hasn't been rain for twelve months. Yeah, really struggling. And so so mm. the cattle are skinny. Unfortunately, we've had se- severe fires recently. Yeah, and true. so this is something that has 
has been expected, in unfortunately or predicted at least, uh, through some of the uh, the climate change research that has, has occurred over the years. They've said that fires will be increased, droughts will become more often. And if that is the case, if their trend is that we've got a drier continent, that there's there's less water falling, uh, that we can't feed the cows, the cattle, or any other livestock, then we have a significant problem. So if there is an option to grow uh, lab-grown meat, then that could be one way forward. And there is a place for both. There is mm. a place for raising cattle, and there is also a place for the, the lab-grown meat to feed the billions of people on Earth. And I think that the, I think you mentioned off air that the the cost of production of lab-grown meat is falling, so it's making it more attractive. Previ- up until recently, it's been really very expensive, very expensive to make a yeah. you know a huge sort of industrial effort to make a tiny output. And I think also because of this sort of weird taste of this stem cell originated meat like artificial meat lab-grown meat that they've actually had to add flavors to, yeah. to make it acceptable well, you'd have to, to add to in people. A, you know fats because you know the way that a you know a cow will you know slowly move around and build up fat you know you get the nice marbling of a meat for example mm. this is not going to replace that in an exact like for like whereas it's going to have similarities to it from my understanding mm. and some of the talk is that you know rather than raising cattle on a farm and going through that process it could be that the, there could be you know a, a lab growing equipment at the, the, the place where you cook the burgers, for example, yeah. and then you, you feed in the stem cells and out pops, you know, after a month, out pops the uh, the burgers you need, or it's a continuous cycle. And it would seem to lend itself to fast food production, things where you're kind of getting a patty, which is like, yeah. uh, you know, a, a, a mincemeat clumped together, maybe with a bit of egg yolk or something to hold it in place and some onions and some flavour or whatever put into it. I mean, God knows what you're getting Look, if when you it, actually buy a fast food burger. I mean, it could be anything. It yeah. might as well be lab-grown for all you know. It, exactly. But, it could, but it's rather, cleaner for the environment. That's yeah. right. But you're not going to... What I'm, what I'm getting at is you're not going to simulate the, the you know, a delicious Wagyu steak mm. or a, or a, a ribeye or, or a porterhouse or whatever. Yeah. You're not going to get that streakiness. You're not going to get the, the little fat around the edge. You're not going to get the flavour... Um, and that, and that, that they're not simulating that yeah. natural steak feel or appearance. And that's why I think there is a place for both because mm. if you want the cheap alternative that yeah. is more environmentally responsible, yes. um, it, you know, potentially can mitigate some carbon emissions, so methane emissions, for example, then this could be a way to produce um, you know, a lot of protein, uh, you know, actual meat because it's grown from the stem cells of cattle mm. um, versus if you want that, you know, that delicious big steak, you're going to go back to the original source that's grown on the land but potentially in future that's going to be a higher cost item just due to the um, you know limited resources that we have, will have available it will be and and also you know you sort of almost wonder what are they going to do with all that land that potentially would be emptied of, of uh, livestock if they are not using it to make burgers because you know, mm. it's one of the you know the fast food industry is enormous around the world sure and uh, it has health impacts it has environmental impacts uh, they are starting to make some some steps in the right direction. They're trying to, you know, McDonald's in Australia has, has introduced sort of healthier diet options, more salads, mm-hmm. more more healthy options. They still sell all their traditional burgers and they're still popular, but uh, I would have thought it would have a very positive impact on the environment and it would it would stop the you know this this tendency to clear fell virgin rainforest for example yes. i mean yep. it's all on fire at the moment in south america or a lot of it is yeah uh, but, that, farming, but that's a place yeah. that's you know the lungs of the earth have been chopped down to make burgers yes well this is a way of, of preventing that and stopping that yep. and uh, it does open that, op- that that possibility of using that land for something else or even dare i say it uh, replanting it and, and uh, reinstating some of that old growth forest and jungle so let's hope that continues it'll be a bit of an adjustment for people just like eating uh, tarantula soup but uh, probably <laughs> not a bad thing <laughs> 
You're listening to Beyond Infinity. John, this year, Mars 2020 is on track for a launch in July. There is a competition to name it, and I haven't actually seen the results of that. I think the results are yet to be announced. But So at the moment, it's just referred to by the year of the launch. It's going to take about six months to get there. So it'll be early 2021 that they'll be actually touching down at Jezero Crater. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a very similar spacecraft to the Curiosity rover, which is at Gale Crater. Mm-hmm. And it's six-wheeled it's rover. It's nuclear-powered. It's got a big arm on it that has a bunch of... Uh, of drills and measurement tools. Yeah, and, yeah, instruments and stuff. It's a very similar design. And the delivery method to get this big rover down weighs nearly a ton. This new class of rovers, they try not to redesign the wheel every time they send one. It's very expensive mm-hmm. to design these things. And, and so they're using basically the same template as they did for the Curiosity rover. That's Mars 2020. These are the big chutes that came out and slowed down the Yeah, that's the right. Drop. They've, yeah. Got, they've got a big parachute, parachute system. They've also got retro rockets that fire, and then it, it's delivered to the actual surface by a sky crane. So okay. it's, it's so-called seven minutes of terror. You come in screaming in, you get a bit of atmosphere breaking effect as you hit the upper atmosphere of Mars. There's a heat shield that slows you down a bit. Mm-hmm. And then a parachute is deployed, and then that separates, and you are left with a, a retro rocket system which fires and that slows it down from... It's like what we've seen with the lunar landers, that when they come in, when the, the moon landing happened, they just mm. fire those reverse rockets, which mm. are the thrusters that sort of yeah. slowly stabilise them. It's kind of like out. that, yeah, but it's okay. actually a separate craft because what, it hap- what happens with it, and this is what happens so successfully with the Curiosity rover in 2012 when it landed there safely at Gale Crater, it dropped it down and then it's like a sky crane. So it gets the, the retro rockets, this frame which is above the rover mm-hmm. and attached to it. Mm-hmm. The rover's sitting underneath it. It has rockets all around it. It has a landing radar. It's telling the craft how far it is away from the surface. It gets quite close to the surface and then it lowers a cable with the actual spacecraft. Mm-hmm. The wheels rotate into place. So right. the rover is ready to drive on that cable. It gets down. There are sensors built into the rover when it senses that it's actually on the surface. Mm-hmm. The explosive bolts fire. The, the cable is cut. And the sky crane, which has got those retro rockets, which have been lowering it gradually down to the surface, they remove the sky crane safely so it doesn't crash onto the rover. Oh, yes. yep. It's just delivered. It goes and crashes, you know, say 500 metres away safely, well removed mm-hmm. from, from where the rover is. Right. And then the rover's ready to go. It can start driving straight away. So that's what happened last time. The radar system which, which helped it land, which is attached to the side of the sky crane, only had the ability to measure the distance between itself and the ground. So when it got to the point where it knew that at the end of the cable, the rover was about to make contact, it slows right down to almost a hover, Mm -hmm. feels the touchdown of the rover, and then it goes. It did not have the ability to say, okay, oh, gee, there's a giant rock there, or there's a cliff, Mm -hmm. or there's a hole, Mm -hmm. or the edge of a scarp or something. And and, because the last thing they want to happen is a billion plus dollar, I think it's two or three billion dollars worth yep. of rover to land on its side yes. or to be dropped into a sand a pit or something or yeah. there's lots of dunes and stuff yep. on on mars a rover did get bogged i think it was the opportunity rover elsewhere on mars it got bogged and they managed to sort of throw it into reverse and just floor it and they so there is to... an option to actually lift it back up if they no. have to so there is now a new system called TRN, which is Terrain Relative Navigation. Mm -hmm. And what that does is, in addition to the radar, which is sensing the distance to the surface Mm -hmm. that Curiosity had, 
In addition to that, since the early 2000s, they've been testing from a helicopter. They've been testing a new system which does exactly what you just said. It's, it's a visual landing system. It uses a camera to scan the ground for landmarks, compares those images to onboard maps, and estimates its position relative to what it knows are obstacles. Mm-hmm. That information has been supplied by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that's got a very high resolution down to less than a metre camera on board. Mm-hmm. So those maps have been loaded into the landing system, into this TRN system, mm-hmm. Those maps are compared against what the camera is seeing as it looks down. Mm-hmm. They do have this advantage of being able to, to say, okay, we're about to land in a, in a sand pit there. Are we going to land on the edge of a cliff? We're going to pause. We're going to move a little bit. Mm-hmm. We're going to find a safer place to land. So my, in my head, you gave me that visual of the helicopter, and I'm thinking of a rescue out at sea when you see somebody you know, rappel over the side and they're connected by the cable and they drop down and, and they pick someone up from the water. So with that, you've got the motion that, the person can go up or down depending on... Yeah, the helicopter pilot can see. And the helicopter pilot itself can obviously then move up, down, left, right in all directions. So what you're saying is it's not just the cable that's allowing the drop that goes up and down. It's also this... That can move around the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the support so system that can actually move right, around. That's right. So yeah. the, the actual sky crane, which, has got, crane, which yeah. has got the retro rockets on it, which is what's slowing the spacecraft down. And when it gets close, so it's exactly the same as Curiosity, that seven minutes yeah. of terror I described. So first the, first the aero shell, aero breaking into the upper mm-hmm. atmosphere, then a parachute, then the sky crane. Mm-hmm. Sky crane has rockets around the edge of it and nestled underneath it, attached to its underbelly, is the actual rover. Yeah. 2020, Mars yeah. 2020. Yeah. When it gets close enough, it lowers the rover down on a cable when the sensors pick up that it's made, the rover's made contact with the ground, with the surface of Mars, the cable's cut and the, the sky crane flies off and crashes somewhere mm-hmm. else well away, safely removed. The difference is that the TRN system can... I don't think it actually retracts the cable. I think what it can do is it, it's looking from well above. It's looking from you know, several kilometres above mm-hmm. the surface as the, as the descent continues. And if they see, using their algorithms to compare what they're seeing with the camera to what the data that's been loaded from Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter about this general area, mm-hmm. very detailed maps, it'll say, okay, let's not go there. We're going to steer slightly to the right, right. or to the left. Yeah. I'm not sure that there's actually the ability to go upwards. If you've, mm-hmm. if you've come down low enough, then you're kind of getting committed to one particular place. Would it, it, still would be, it would be somewhat falling, wouldn't it, um, as it's coming down? Uh, or is the thrusters going to hold it in no, a thru- position? The thrusters effectively can, you know, when it touches down at the end of that cable, is almost hovering. Yeah, right, so it's a okay. very soft landing. Yeah, and that yeah. was the same with Curiosity. So it's a very sophisticated system. They've just added that layer mm. of a very accurate ter- terrain measurements in real time so these are all processed by the spacecraft Mm -hmm. we don't know there's a time delay of about 10 minutes Mm -hmm. during this landing next year takes six months to get to mars they can't look at it in real time all this gets programmed into the spacecraft the maps get loaded before it leaves earth Mm -hmm. of the detailed terrain maps which it uses to compare with what it's seeing in real time and it does it all itself it uses its own computers on board Mm -hmm to make these assessments and to say, okay, we can't land there. Let's go slightly to the left or to the right Mm -hmm. or forwards or backwards. When the moon landings happened with Apollo, the way that system worked was that the astronauts were able to look out a window and they could see the landing site. And and that's in fact exactly what happened 
Neil Armstrong chose to avoid a, a pile of big boulders, skirted across them and made a safe landing. Mm-hmm. So that's the same system that's being, same idea. It's fully autonomous now. It's yeah. autonomous. And I guess this is now, you know, the test is going to be here. So in case they want to use this on the future system to then drop other equipment in future. Well, yeah. well, this is this is what the real beauty of this is. Jezero Crater, which is the target for Mars 2020, is a, a very interesting place. It's got lake beds, which mm-hmm. they want to look at for possible signs of past microbial life. Mm-hmm. So the, the whole objective of the 2020 mission is to really look at the possibility of life on Mars. Does it exist now? Mm-hmm. Did it exist in the past? Mm-hmm. And so they want to go to places where they know there've been lakes and rivers flowing in, forming lakes, and that's where they get built up of sediment. And in those sediments, they may well find the telltale signs of life. Yeah. They're not realistically expecting to actually find microbes that would be great if they did but it's more like the telltale signs sure. that microbes might once some have, trails they may have left yeah, or some excrement or something that is yeah fossil record yeah yeah that's right so the beauty of trn terrain relative navigation system that the land the landing process is going to take advantage of is that it allows them to land much more accurately mm-hmm. so in a more dangerous area mm-hmm. where there are obstacles where there are sand traps where there's steep rocks sharp rocks dangers to a lander but they're confident they've done a lot of testing in the desert in america mm-hmm. in in rough terrain desert with uh, escarpments and other obstacles lots of rocky barren terrain mm-hmm. hilly mountainous and they reckon it works really well. They actually reckon that it worked as, it, down to, I think, 20-metre accuracy. Incredible. So they are, that's, that's what they're planning to do with this. So they get, they're going to be much more ambitious in where they land. Previously, basically, they've been looking for car parking lots, the equivalent of a dead flat, safe place to put your rover down. Then the rover can drive long distances mm-hmm. to where the interesting science is. In this case, they can get it much closer to the science. Mm-hmm. And one of the benefits is they're even saying that, you know, they don't necessarily, you know, if this system works well enough, then they, they don't necessarily need to have wheels. They can go so accurately with the landing that the, the, the target that they want to get to, instead of needing a rover to drive to it, they can drop the drill or the instruments right to the site. Mm-hmm. Doesn't It can be much lighter, mm-hmm. doesn't need wheels, doesn't need as much power. Less expensive Less overall. Expense, yeah. Absolutely. Weight is everything in, in spacecrafts. That's the big expense, so they can get that down. So this will be interesting. This will have this same system. Will have other applications. There's even private companies that are looking to use this same system to very safely deliver payloads to our moon, mm. the Earth's moon, okay. for all sorts of purposes, scientific purposes, mining, mining yeah. resource uh, gathering, yeah. gathering that sort of stuff. And so that's the other use for it. If it works here, even more locally, I mean, if it can be used in some kind of emergency situation for recovery efforts. Or in delivering items to remote areas, uh, you know, anywhere across the world, or that that could potentially be, um, you know, useful there as well. Or in reverse, if you know we need to to rescue somebody out of a difficult environment, that might potentially be a way to do it as well. With a drone, as opposed to a manned, uh, exactly, manned yeah. helicopter. Yeah. Yep, yep, indeed. So this lander vision system that that's going to be used activates at about four point two kilometres above the surface. Once the back shell comes off at 2,300 metres above the surface, the vehicle then uses that TRN system that we've been talking about to gauge its position and then autonomously select the safest nearby pixel from its target maps and then down it goes. Mm. It's making its judgment well above the surface, Mm -hmm. kilometres above the Mm. surface. I think once you get low enough with the sky crane, you are going to be committed to where you're going. So you make the decision higher up, gives you more opportunity to adjust your trajectory. Look, they were pretty accurate with the Curiosity lander. I think they came down to within one or two kilometres mm-hmm. of where they had the ideal target within an ellipse that they've sure. sort of drawn on the surface, that mm-hmm. that was where they were trying to land. So it was pretty accurate, but with 
Landing in Jezero with Mars 2020, they want to be even more accurate yeah. with that. Yeah. It'll be fascinating to see how that pans out. But there, as I mentioned, there are private companies that want to use this to get to the moon and uh, use that same precision landing technique. There are parts of the moon, particularly the poles, mm-hmm. that have got lots of craters, mm-hmm. very uneven surface, dangerous for landing craft, whether rovers or fixed landers. So uh, again, to be, have that ability to make autonomous decisions on the way down, because our moon's even closer, they, they'd be able to relay signals back to Earth and, yeah. and people on Earth would be actually be able to look at photos and say, okay, no, you've got to adjust your position one way or the other. So it won't necessarily need to be totally autonomous. But potentially further out, you know, the, the moons of Jupiter, for example, might be a you know, future mission where this would be used. That's exactly the other um, example. There's a orbiter and a lander that are proposed for Europa, which is one of the moons of Jupiter. And again, they well, they won't. They definitely won't have any benefit of being able to talk back with Earth because no. there's several hours of time delay between the two positions. So they are looking for this same autonomous system. There's a Europa Clipper orbiter, which would do the same thing as MRO, take the photos and then supply them to the lander which would be taking advantage of that extra information saying, okay, well, that's a bad place to land. That's a good place to land. So that's another application. NASA's Dragonfly program is to send a a rotorcraft to Titan. So it's actually a drone. We've talked about on this program. And then that would benefit using that TRN system. Two spacecraft working together Mm. to get a safe landing Mm -hmm. at a a desired target. Europe is another place where they would love to uh, have a good look for the possibility of microbial life or or who knows, maybe even more advanced life, or none at all, we don't know. The other place that it's also been used is on the OSIRIS-REx sample collection mission to the asteroid Bennu. You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. I'm late to the party, but I downloaded the TikTok app mm-hmm. uh, not so long ago, and it has got some funny stuff there. You can, you know, it's like a lot of these things with the endless scroll. I'm, I'm not a Facebook person. I, I know from others that you can just spend your life just, you know, pick up the phone in the morning, robotically clean the sleep out of your eyes, and see what's on this endless scroll. The concept scroll. is not necessarily new because it's, you know, Instagram has videos, Facebook yes. has videos, yes. and there have been other services over the years that have, have attempted this yeah. sort of short video uh, service because uh, it's like a 60 second video that you Yeah, can do, they're all short. But it has exploded. It's exploded. And they combine it with music. They combine it with lip syncing and dance. It's a the parent company is a Chinese company called Byte Dance. And what's interesting with this is that recently a song did really really well. It became it went viral. So it was kind of launched via TikTok with a bit of a clip. It went viral. And then that music did really well on Spotify. So right. people saw it first on TikTok, mm-hmm. watched it with this uh, very attractive and sort of viral experience. It, 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 yeah, well, it went viral basically. So it became really popular on TikTok. And then people switched over and said, oh, I want to get my own, I want to listen to that more often. Mm-hmm. I'll get it on Spotify. So it was just an example of where TikTok fed into an existing streaming service. But now what's interesting and what may be causing some concern to Spotify and other music services, Apple Music potentially as well, but Spotify I think is still the biggest around the world is that the parent company ByteDance that owns TikTok is actually going to be launching their own streaming music application Mm -hmm. starting in India and Indonesia in December 2019. Mm -hmm. 
and then moving out into other markets, including a, a US launch to follow. So that, they're focusing on the emerging markets, I guess. They yeah. are to start with because that's where Spotify doesn't have a, such an entrenched hold. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but also, I suppose what might be of concern is that the music service that ByteDance is going to offer will be linked to TikTok. Mm. So it could potentially feed off the popularity of TikTok. And, mm. and where a song goes viral on TikTok, it could be feeding more seamlessly. Just as. Uh, It'll be an integration where it's just, like, you know, listen to this in full on this yes, other app. Yeah, that's yes. right. You know, you'll get it for free or you'll get it for a limited time if you, if you just click straight through from mm. TikTok to this streaming service. Mm. Those kind of things. Mm. A bit like Shazam does. Uh, it's now owned by Apple. Uh, it is possible to Shazam something and listen to it in Spotify, but the simplest way to go is just to you know the default yeah. is just to click apple music and, and and thereby listen to it straight away so that kind of that kind of seamless integration it may even be more fundamental than that because one of the, the, the things that's the success of tiktok is it's got a social component mm-hmm. you can share things you can like things you can follow things there's a bit more interactivity and, and, with that and, side of, yeah. yeah so so that could be tying into the music service more because spotify doesn't really have that it lets you share playlists but there's not a lot of uh, social you can see that you have followers on your playlist yes. but you can't interact with those followers no. and yeah. there's no benefit really to you i mean it's yeah. Yeah. sort of sharing music and yeah. you like this you created the playlist oh, I like that playlist so I'll, I'll keep listening to them but it's very much a one way street that's know? right Yeah, there's I mean, no there's no option to talk about the music with others in a forum there may be yeah. forums I don't, I've never explored to that extent uh, but, yeah. but not on a big scale uh, whereas there may be with, uh, with this, uh, this sort of sister music streaming service of TikTok so one to keep an eye out for just some of the numbers involved TikTok is hugely popular, a bigger phenomenon, if you like, on the internet than is Spotify. So 1.5 billion downloads of TikTok out of a total 3.3 active smartphone users worldwide. And since January 2014, there's been 864.3 million downloads of Spotify. In that same period, TikTok has seen 1.52 billion downloads. So it's much bigger and it has really been uh, screaming away in popularity. As I said, I'm late to the party. It's been it's been going since I think it was launched in 2017, TikTok. But it's really only been the last 12 months. But it's really it's taken exploded. off. And there's some yeah. funny stuff on it. I mean, let's, there is some funny stuff on it. And it, it's kind of got that punchiness. It, it does almost inspire you to you know, make some funny videos with your kids or make some funny videos with your mates. I mean, I mean there's all sorts of really bizarre stuff on there. It's just uh, sort of Vine reimagined in a way because Vine was around years ago, but that was only, I think, seven seconds or something really, you know, really short. This is a bit longer but it's certainly got um you know a, a comedy uh, side to it you know sometimes a serious side but it's very much about making people laugh or, or have a bit of fun there's even suggestions that facebook could get involved or could have some kind of strategic link up with this streaming product from ByteDance. Okay. Facebook's got 2.47 billion monthly active users. There's a firm belief that video first and interactive is the future of digital media. Encouraging sharing and virality are things that Facebook could be really useful in that area yeah. as well. So, yeah. so just another way that Facebook can leverage all that uh, data that it has and that huge subscriber base that it has and people who've downloaded its app, all the benefits that flow from that, mm-hmm. despite all the talk of antitrust or, or, or breaches of privacy or being hauled in front of Congress and stuff, Facebook remains a power and a, a force to be reckoned with. So tying up, getting involved in the music area, I think it's something that's another string to Facebook's bow as well. So very interesting interesting to see what that new streaming service looks like from ByteDance launching in December 2019. Do you have to pay anything on TikTok or is, uh, it, or no, is it advertising no, supported? No, I, I think it's advertising supported. The, the couple of tracks that have done really well on TikTok was The Git Up from Blanco Brown and uh, Regards Ride It and uh, Ash Nico's Stupid. 
They started on TikTok, went viral there, and then wound up with over 26 million plays on Spotify and topped its global viral 50 chart. So that's where the linkage is. And Spotify mm. would welcome the traffic in a way yeah. and the referral of, to them. But unfortunately, there could be of a longer term issue you know, where they lose control of the so-called demand curve mm. for music. So keep an eye on that and see how ByteDance does when it launches Thanks for listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. For our complete back catalogue, head to beyondinfinity.com.au. You can also engage with us on social media, Beyond Infinity RWPFM on Facebook, Infinity RPP on Twitter. 